Welcome to the Preacher's Podcast for the Festival of the Transfiguration of Our Lord in Year A. Uh, we have just concluded a series called the Savior's Sermon, and we are about to begin a new series uh, for the season of Lent. So transfiguration does not fit into either one of those. Um, it is sort of this bridge between the two. And so the glory of the Lord is our theme for today. Not really a part of the last Epiphany series, but sort of a standalone uh, a theme all of its own. Um, so we'll be talking about that more today and uh, thinking about Matthew's account of the transfiguration. So I'm, let's meet our participants. I'm John Mitchell from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary um, with us again, as they have been for this Epiphany season, Pastor Phil Kasmer from Christ the Lord in Brookfield, Wisconsin, Pastor Phil Hebner from Wisconsin Lutheran High School, and with us today also is Professor Alan Sorum from the seminary. So thank you all for serving today. Well, let's dive right in. Uh, Phil Hebner, can you get us thinking about transfiguration and what main thoughts we want worshipers to go home with today? Well, we've been on a journey now throughout Epiphany, and, and what a journey it's been uh, to start with the Epiphany of our Lord and Jesus revealing himself first to the Magi, and then going to the waters of uh, the Jordan River, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little today, uh, and how that connects, and uh, having Jesus kick off his ministry revealed as the Anointed One, and then week by week, uh, seeing little, little bits of Jesus revealing who he is as the promised one to come showing little glimpses of glory, uh, and it's been a great journey. And now, though that has been veiled, we have like full blast for just a few moments uh, up on this Mount of Transfiguration. And so Jesus reveals that glory, which we're going to talk about and which is the basis for our theme for today. Uh, but the journey we've been on, as great as it is, it's not finished. And so we also have to come down this mountain so Jesus can go up another one on Mount Calvary. So. This transitional point of Jesus revealing himself, showing a full glimpse of glory, but yet just a sneak peek as he's about to take us on another journey, following in his footsteps uh, in Lent to the cross. Uh, what, a, what a great day, what a profound moment, what a, what a profound place, this Mount of Transfiguration. So lots for us to talk and think about, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion about it today. Excellent. Yeah, just a beautiful festival um, strategically placed here so we can think about some huge themes um, in our Savior's life and ministry. Well, Phil Kasmer, let's go to you next. We'll be focusing on the gospel as our sermon text. Could you brief us on the uh, first and second readings and maybe give us some hints at how they relate to one another? Uh, so we have as a first reading from Exodus chapter 24, um, Moses and the people of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai, uh, Moses going to receive the law from God, God's glory covering the mountain. Um, there are often drawn, I think, some distinctions between Exodus 24, like God's fiery presence on the mountain versus the inviting revelation of God's glory in Christ at the transfiguration, except I do think there are some gracious correspondences to uh, where at the beginning of that reading in Exodus 24, Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders of Israel are, are eating with God, sitting in his glorious presence, that beautiful description 
uh, a pavement made of lapis lazuli, bright as bright blue as the sky. Um, and God did not raise his hand against the leaders. They saw God, they ate and they drank, they fellowshiped with him, um, which is what he's doing for us through Christ. He's drawing us into his fellowship. I think that's a connection to not just set aside. Um, and then, of course, uh, there are some ancillary things that go on with Exodus, like uh, the people of Israel, when Moses finally comes down the mountain, they've really bungled it and they're worshiping a golden calf. Uh, and they need God's revelation of what glory truly is. And there are some things that are attendant like that in our gospel text too, I think that we'll talk about maybe with Peter's confession and other things that preceded this text. So in Exodus 24, perhaps we could say, uh, God reveals himself and he, he speaks his will to his people um, in this kind of covering the mountain cloud sort of way. We'll see the same kind of thing in the gospel. Uh, and then in the second lesson, Second Peter 1, um, you have Peter who saw the transfigured Lord Jesus now saying the message we proclaim is not a passing thing. It's not insignificant. It is eyewitness testimony of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, and I think, too, he says some corresponding things, almost as though he learned the lesson from what God said in the gospel. So in verse 19, he says, well, what do we do with this Jesus and the gospel message? We pay attention to it, like a bright light shining in a dark place. You can't ignore it. Um, it is prophecy from God, the telling of his saving message, and, and so we need to hear it. Um, God reveals that glory and honor in Jesus Christ, and that's the one Peter tells and the one we tell too. Uh, that's kind of what I thought for connections and sort of summary for these two. Great, that's very helpful. Uh, let's go to the sermon text then. Uh, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, the Matthean account of the transfiguration. And Alan Sorum, could you get us thinking about that? Just highlight whatever you would like to, and um, then we'll uh, take it from there. Thank you. Uh, there are three things I'd like to highlight, and um, um, our friends Phil and Phil have touched on both of them. One is just the the timing of this great event of the transfiguration is very interesting. It's a great segue to Lent, as we've talked about going up, you go up and down the Mount of Transfiguration. So you, so Jesus can go up to his Calvary Mountain. That, that's a great connection. I want to point out the connection of Matthew 16 and verse 21. Uh, Peter had just confessed his faith, though awkwardly and um, not completely purely, but he had confessed his faith in Jesus. So now Jesus says, well, you know, now I can tell you about my death. He uses clear words. I am going to be handed over to sinners. I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And then in Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus says, and if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up your cross. So right after Jesus talks about the brutality of his cross and suffering and death on it, and the burden or the, the, you know, the burden of our cross that we see the, the relationship of, of the cross to seeing Jesus glory. I, I'm, I'm sure there's a very strong purposeful connection because in wherever the transfiguration is in the gospel accounts, it follows the confession of faith, the clear confession of faith 
which gives Jesus the opportunity to now teach clearly about the cross. So I think that's definitely something the preacher wants to keep in mind is how the cross was Jesus' way of getting his people to glory. And the cross Jesus gives to us is a way that Jesus keeps us on that path, keeps us close to him and dependent on him and and having solidarity with him in self-denial and service and all that uh, really important Lenten thoughts. Um, The other thing I'd like to point out is uh, like Phil connected so wonderfully the transfiguration to the gospel notion of Exodus 24, the fellowshipping with God. Let's not forget that this is not the first conversation that our friend Moses had with Jesus. The first one was uh, in Exodus chapter 3, where Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, um, the glory of Jesus definitely being shown in the burning, flaming fire that made Moses fall to his face in fear, just like the burning brightness of Jesus made Peter, James, and John fall to their face in fear. But it wasn't a consuming fire. So the really interesting connection is the the, the transcendency and the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ in the burning fire, but yet Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, invited Moses to take off your shoes, come to me, I'm, gonna, I'm getting ready to call you. I'm not only going to call you to lead people out of slavery, but I'm going to be with you and I'm going to guarantee your, your success and just the, the approach of the, the way God condescends, so to speak, in making himself approachable. That's what we see it so beautifully uh, taught in the transfiguration account when Peter says, I want to make three tents. How's that for approachability? You know, like, let's just hang out here with glorious God in this close, personal, wonderful relationship. And then the third thing I, I I really like what Luther has to say about the transfiguration. He doesn't have, that I could find, a lot to say, but what he says is really powerful. We see a powerful proof of the resurrection in in Moses and Elijah, who never died, standing there with uh, Jesus, just carrying on as though um, they were used to this, uh, being together, hanging out together, because God is not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. But what Luther invites us to do is to see in this glorified Jesus our own future glory, like what Paul talks about in both Corinthians and certainly in Philippians, that he's going to change our vile bodies like unto his glorious bodies. You want to see what that looks like? Check out the transfiguration. That's what that's that's us, as it were. Luther invites us to think of that person standing between Elijah and uh uh, Moses, that's that's us receiving the gift of the glory that Jesus won for us. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, three great points that will give preachers a lot to think about as they work with this text. Um, can we maybe taking what Alan has said and <clears throat> expanding from it there, look at this text kind of through a lens of law and gospel? Um, I think Alan has brought up a number of really intriguing thoughts in that regard, especially that second point you mentioned with the connection with uh, Moses and the eating and drinking on the mountain, um, fellowshipping with sinful people. Uh, what are some 
ways that you would approach this as a preacher, highlighting um, the law and then bringing out aspects of the gospel to address that? Ideas in, in that regard or further expansion on those? Phil Hebner? Well, that whole idea of fellowship with God being one or right with God, I mean, that's, that's finally what every person on the planet wants, whether they know it or not. You know, your natural knowledge of God, your natural inner desire to want to be right with a higher power. I mean, it's like Peter said, like, let's do the skene thing. Let's get some tents going here. And this is what I'm looking for. I want this in my life. Um, but that fear that the disciples had and that uh, both the brothers have brought up here, the fear that, that Moses had and the others just to know, like, I, I don't deserve this. I should not be in fellowship with God. And so I guess that directs my thoughts to what the father said to his son. This is my son. This is my beloved one. Um, the one with whom I'm so pleased or well-pleased or however you want to say that. Um, and I, I don't think there can be any coincidence whatsoever that it's the exact same wording uh, in Greek here in uh, this text as it is at Jesus' baptism. And to think like, that's what I want so badly is for the father to be able to say that to me, you know, that I could be in fellowship with him and that he could say, you're the one I love with you. I'm so pleased, you know, and so to see this moment, which parallels Jesus' baptism to know that through Christ, I have a new identity. And now the father can say that to me. Now I do have this inviting grace to be in his fellowship. Now I, I am the one that he loves and his child. And he's so pleased with me. And it's all because of this Christ who uh, has this little bit of glory, but hides it again to go to the cross on Calvary so that I can have that identity and that future glory forever. Um, so just kind of tying it all in of my absolute worthlessness of not pleasing the father, not being able to be in fellowship. And yet through this Christ, through this Jesus, I have just that. I mean, how, how powerful and how transformational to know that. Bill Casper. Um, and maybe for the other side of the coin of that, uh, often when I'm preaching on a gospel text, I'll pull out uh, Walter Wangren's Book of God, which is just the Bible as a novel, which is obviously a ton of authors' choices to frame things up. And But he spends a good bit of time in his rendering of this section um, in the mind of Peter and how Peter really messed it up just before saying, nah, Jesus, you're not, nope, you can't die. That's not going to happen. Uh, and, and he spends time wandering through, was Peter really worrying about his relationship with Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that when he gets to this transfiguration moment, he doesn't know what to say. And he kind of throws out his best thought. Let's stay here on the mountain. I want this fellowship with God, like Phil just said, which is good. So sorry to finally get down to the other side of the coin. I think we can also come to get that fellowship with God in a variety of ways. A lot of them false. Uh, and it's significant in this text that there's Jesus at the end and nobody else, you know, we're meant to see him and that the father says the exact same thing he did at the baptism, but he also says, listen to my son, as though we're tempted to listen to everything else, which we are, uh, to have our own concepts of how to get to God, to, 
they want to do and know and see a variety of things. I think there's a bunch of illustrations you can do that way. Um, but I, I think that's part of the law aspect. I'm certainly tempted to look a lot of other places than here at the one God gave. Yeah, the um, desire to have a connection with the glorious God, but then the question of, well, how is that ever going to happen? Um, and uh, standing in the presence of the glorious God <clears throat> maybe is a different matter, in fact, than we like to think it would be, because, yeah, there's this chasm between uh, the sinful world and the glorious, perfect God, right? But then, yeah, addressing that with um, God's desire, in spite of our unworthiness, to be one with us and fellowship with us and be together with us in peace and in love. Yeah, but I like what you said there, Phil, about um, seeking out that fellowship or trying to manufacture it in ways that really do not work. Um, is that part of the malady that we would explore here? Um, or, or thinking that, yeah, maybe we are in some way deserving of, of God's good presence and good gifts or seeking to create that environment in some way. Whereas uh, God says, no, it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus through whom that happens. Um, anything else you'd like to bring out, law and gospel? Alan? Help me with the name of St. Biles' pastoral theology that we just read through together as a faculty, Jonathan. Uh, the Care of Souls? Is yeah, The it? Care of Souls. In that book, there was a, a, a section where St. Biles said that a pastor needs to be in tune with and aware of his members' concept of God's holiness and of their own holiness. And um, that struck me as a very interesting concept because as professional Christians, especially, I'll only speak for myself, no one else here present, I can get pretty comfortable with the words and things of God. Um, it's, it's like my tools and I'm familiar with my tools. And, you know, sometimes my, I, you know, I don't take care of my tools the way I should take care of my tools. And my metaphor is already getting out of hand. But just the concept of the, the burning bright holiness of God. He doesn't play games. He's not going to be mocked. He's this burning bright fire. And, and, and as we preach the law, we sure want to make sure our people understand that God is holy and he calls us to be holy. And here's a great spot to illustrate the, that through the burning fire. But he also wants fellowship with me. And that there's the only way he can do that is to impute to me his holiness. So I think that, that could be a, a thought for a, a preacher to consider. Sure, both the, from the law side and the gospel side. Phil Kasmer? Yeah, unrelated to that, I mean, you know, Jesus makes his revelation of glory, who he is, for his disciples' sake, for us to, for them probably acutely, because he's going to go down the mountain and to another mountain and die, just as he said. Um, and I can't remember where I read it, but, you know, we, we are always after glory of some kind by sinful nature, um, but someone commented that here you've got this commentary from God that his glory and Jesus cross are not um, at odds. Mm -hmm. This is the way that sinners are going to come to uh, not have to be afraid of his burning fiery glory, but actually be okay. 
in it. Uh, that thought that the two things are not at odds, that, that Jesus is assuring his disciples, yeah, I just said, I'm going to go to the cross and die. Well, here's who I am, the one who's going to do that. Um, that it's exactly God's plan. I think we need that assurance or have to bring that to mind again, too. Yeah, I like the way uh, you put it, Alan, um, the relationship between cross and glory. The cross is the way God gets us to glory, namely Jesus' cross. And the cross is he calls us to, to carry our, his way of keeping us on that path to glory. Um, but right, I think that that has, uh, there's a lot of opportunity for that in the Transfiguration text, positioned as it is, uh, sort of a preview of the season of Lent, uh, following Jesus' prediction of his suffering and death, um, the relationship of the cross and glory, uh, kind of fits in with what we were just talking about, too, about, uh, you know, finding a way to fellowship with God. Well, the cross is the key uh, to seeing God's glory, too. Um Great. Um, other thoughts on uh, illustrations, applications that might be helpful to preachers as they're going about this? And we've kind of made some reference to some already, but other thoughts? Uh, Phil Hebner? Um, I, I just want to kind of piggyback on that and maybe then extend to what you're asking about, John. I mean, I, I, I see the value of verses eight and nine, you know, being as a part of this where the whole thing that everyone was all hyped about, the glory, and then it was just, bam, gone. And they just saw Jesus. And then the verse nine value of Jesus saying, that glory is cool and it's coming for you, but not yet. Don't, don't tell anyone yet. So I, maybe illustration-wise, I guess I'm sure a lot of us might have had the illustration of like, uh, have you been in the presence of a celebrity before or someone really famous or, or whatever? And it's just like this awestruck kind of wow thing. And don't you want to just say, hey, I met this famous person. You want to tell everyone you know. Um, and Jesus um, tells these three disciples who saw the most incredible thing that they have really not yet seen from him at all. This glorious moment shining brightly. Not yet, not yet, not yet. And, and so maybe for us to know we have this joy as Christians. You know, we, we've seen the glory of Christ through the word and him risen from the dead and all that kind of a thing um, and that joy will carry us and yes we are going to bubble over and tell other people because it is time now to tell others about jesus but also that that not yet that we've been talking about where there's still the cross for us to carry um, there's still that journey for us where the full glory of jesus will finally be seen on the last day or when we're called home uh, so i guess just just to think about the, the glimpse that Jesus gives us, and it's a preview. It's a preview of, of, of course, what he's going to do at the cross, but it's also a preview of what we're going to finally see in heaven. And, you know, how does the Christian carry that preview with them every day, knowing that verse 9 kind of, but not yet, but not yet, there's still the cross on the journey along the way. Uh, there's just so much to think about there, I think. There is. Yeah. Thanks for pointing out that verse nine. I think that is, you know, the cross is not mentioned explicitly there, but that gets at why Jesus gives this warning, right? Glory is awesome, but we can't skip over the cross and go right to the glory, right? Either for Jesus or for us too. Uh, Alan? Yeah, I think of how Peter himself used this transfiguration as an illustration of his absolute conviction of 
the reliability of God's word and how he wants us to have that most certain conviction of the reliability of the word because he saw the deity of the one who came to earth to give it to us. I think that's a great illustration. I, I also think uh, I mentioned Luther's illustration that this is a proof positive of the resurrection. Moses and Elijah never died. They're very much alive right now. The God of our fathers, the God of the uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of the living. This, this transfiguration illustrates the, uh, the resurrection. Yeah. Uh, so there's a uh, connection there that I see between that reading from Second Peter and the listen to him in um, the transfiguration gospel. Uh, the, the vital importance of listening to the voice of the Lord uh, for us in the scriptures, the light shining in the dark place. And what is one of the thing it says is that things the word says, glory is coming, resurrection is coming, this is for you, uh, but, but not quite yet. There is time for cross and suffering, but glory is in store for us. Uh, Phil Kasmer? A few things that I thought of, which are just maybe more mundane, but um... Maybe useful. <clears throat> I always struggle with what to do with, you know, how much to dwell on what Peter said. And uh, when you gather up all the gospel accounts, I don't think they, they paint Peter's speaking in a totally favorable light. Um, so he probably shouldn't assume the worst, but he didn't seem to know what he was saying or what could he possibly do. I do think there is some something akin to the way we roll in daily life now with all the things that can distract us, which, so I'll get down to the other illustration too, but uh, so many things that can distract us. And so many of them are these social media things where we like have this immediate voice to just chuck our, our importance out into the world as though it needs to be heard. You know, in the text, Peter doesn't reply to anybody, but he replies. He's got to say something in the moment. And I probably would have done the same thing, but I also do that. You know, I need to tweet this and I got to say that. And it's kind of my own ways to get to self-importance, glory, goodness, yada, yada, yada. That might be over-specific, but it makes me think of that right away. Um, the other thing I was thinking of was in the world that is so busy where we are tempted to be just connected to so many things. I don't know if you guys have seen, but, you know, now they make apps that are just for focus. Uh, like I need to do this when I write my sermon. I have to pull up an app that will literally shut down everything else. So I don't see news feeds and I don't see messages and it's just this. And I, I think about this text in that way too. It's like, you know, Jesus brought his disciples there to cloud over everything else and say, here he is. This is the one. Now listen to him. And we're doing a little bit of that when we preach on this text too, calling our people to see Jesus Christ, my savior and how he is and then what he does. Yeah, I think of that in connection with verse 8 also. Uh, they saw no one except Jesus, right? So a, a, a narrowing the, of the focus on God, the glorious Son, who will bear a cross for us. Um, any ideas as far as um, themes or, or anything like that or further illustrations for preachers? Uh, Phil Hebner? I was just going to piggyback on that and say there's just great instructional opportunity about worship and liturgy here and just building off of what 
what we've all been saying, but what Phil just said, you know, man, Transfiguration is just one of the favorites for me. I mean, there's some fantastic hymns that we have that, that uh, really teach and illustrate all of this kind of stuff, you know. Um, but then if you do like the full thing with like the liturgical colors and even like the farewell to Alleluia yeah. right at the end, I mean, this, this baby gets stark real fast. And if you're talking about focus, I just love this time of the year where you show up next week for church and bam, you know, like the joy is muted. The hallelujahs are gone. The purple is there. And we are right in the temptation of our Lord. Uh, and the journey is on. And that is very much what we're talking about with the Christian life here. Like, so I, I just think it's so cool how um, liturgically and you follow this church season stuff. Um, and they only saw Jesus. Well, here we go. Let's go into Lent and let's see Jesus and press pause on the hallelujahs. And wait for the real celebration when he's risen from the dead, which gives us life. And we're going to bring those hallelujahs and the white colors back. And then we're going to see some shining glory. I mean, I just love this moment because it's so transitional in the church year. And it just mm -hmm. brings everything uh, to what Phil said. Total focus is about to happen. Right. The contrast between transfiguration and then, well, Ash Wednesday, too. And then and then the first Sunday in Lent. Uh, yeah, great. Great encouragement to explore some of those options as you observe this festival and, uh, yeah, add some visuals, some ritual to it that can kind of highlight those themes. Alan? To pick up on what Phil said about the transition to Lent, um, some very rough draft, but something like, uh, in Lent, we are about to see the glory of the cross. And, and, you know, Phil would turn that into a more propositional statement that we would all much prefer. But uh, part one could be that the, 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 the cross is glorious because by it, Jesus achieved our salvation. And the second part would be in, in our own cross, Jesus keeps us near close to that salvation, something like that. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Yeah, bringing out those cross glory connections that you mentioned before okay. other possibilities or other ways to kind of put a main thought into words for the sermon phil kasmer um you can always do the take out some of these words from the text the main word from jesus is don't be afraid and i've done that as a simple theme too before to focus on um i don't have to be afraid because this is the jesus i have glorious who goes to the cross and then also who condescends to speak to me and be there for me um, he says don't be afraid to his disciples yeah yeah um right picking up on some of those powerful phrases that are there in the text and using them to kind of uh lead into an exploration of the themes that are related to them there that we've been discussing I think I used as a theme once uh, something like highlight only Jesus, um, kind of keying off of verse eight, they saw no one except Jesus. And using as an illustration, um, you know, a bright highlighter marker um, where, you know, the whole purpose of highlighting something in a book is, okay, when I come back to this again, I want it to draw my attention to this key thought. Um, and just the, the brightness of Jesus here pointing us directly to him. He's the one to focus on um, for all the reasons that we've been talking about. So 
I don't know. I don't know if I'm real happy with that theme, but uh, it worked uh, and provided a little hook um, to kind of get at some of the main thoughts we've been talking about. Phil Hebner. Uh, I think the two times I preached on this two or three, um, I went with something like a glimpse of glory or a taste of glory where Jesus mm -hmm. gets just a little preview. And I think Alan was the one who brought it up a couple of times, you know, that resurrection thing with Elijah and Moses. So not only do we get a, just a little glimpse of what it's going to be like with Jesus, but also a little glimpse of heaven, just, man, I'm, I'm going to have conversation with Elijah and Moses and a whole lot of other people. Uh, so just a little taste of what's coming was kind of, I think, uh, the way I went with the sermon, a preview of Easter, a preview of heaven. Great. Good idea. Alan? One more. Uh, why was Elijah and Moses there? Uh, you know, and that's an important question. And I don't know that you know, the text specifically answers it, but we could certainly speculate Elijah's representing all the prophets that had for hundreds and hundreds of years promised this moment. And uh, Moses representing the, the terrible law that nobody had ever been able to fulfill. And the two of them coming together to, to talk about, um, to talk to Jesus uh, and maybe perhaps to celebrate that in this, uh, in this moment of the cross, when he's lifted up on the cross and he draws all men to himself by his suffering, death, and hell for all people on that cross, it's the fulfillment of everything that Elijah and Moses um, ever ever preached. Right, right. Um, Elijah does get a little more airplay in the lectionary in year B, uh, where Second Kings two is the the first reading. So. Elijah highlighted a little bit more, but yeah, for sure, uh, the connection between the, the the Old Testament prophets and the fulfillment of of all their life's work that Jesus is uh, kind of a, a powerful thing there to see these two men uh, standing and conversing with Jesus. Uh, great. Well, let's wrap there for today. I think we've given preachers a lot to think about as they go about proclaiming the glory of the Lord seen in his transfiguration. God bless you preachers as you lead people to the mountain and then after that to the cross.